welcome to episode 43 of the Talent Athlete Podcast, creating a repeatable sales process. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as always, I'm joined by the venerable Brandon Corbin. Welcome, good, Brandon. Good day. Good day. Good day, sir. And our that, guest. That's for our friend. That's from our friend overseas we don't talk to anymore. Yeah, Stephen. Stephen. Stephen, if you're listening, we miss you on the podcast. We miss you. All right, let's talk to our guest here, Alex Lopez. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Before we get into our topic, which I'm really excited to talk about, I want to spend a minute just talking about the Talentopoly job board. We've got some great jobs on there. Uh, you can find the job board at talentopoly.com jobs. And we have a great cloud service engineer job on there from Interactive Intelligence. So if you're interested in, uh, in helping them architect, basically they're, they're coming up with a, a software-as-a-service version of their software right now. It's completely cloud-based. And if you have experience with cloud-based technologies like Amazon Web Services then you sh- and you're looking for a job or moving to a different job, go check that out on the job board and get in touch with them. They're a great company. They've got tons of perks. They even have a rock climbing wall in their offices. It's really cool. I've been there to eat lunch a few times and blown away by how nice the place is. And you get your own office, actually. Every developer, I think, gets their own office. At least 90% of the developers, I know for sure, have their own offices there. What, so, what company is that with the, with the rock? Uh, yeah, wall? it's uh, Interactive Intelligence. And they oh, do, yeah, that's cool. They do voice over IP telephony. They're huge in this market. They're, yeah. they're just absolutely a huge company. They're growing like crazy and just looking for talented developers every day. So, and I, I have lunch with the recruiters regularly. They're really great people. They actually understand the technology that they're, the positions they're hiring you for, and they can talk to you a little bit about the technology side of it. They're not like other recruiters that have no clue what HTML is or CSS or JavaScript or Java. Or, they can talk about .NET and the runtimes and some of the libraries they're using and how they're committing back to open source. And it's really a neat company. So if you are into that sort of thing, go check them out on the Townopoly job board. And with that, let's get into what we're drinking, starting with you, Brandon. Um, I'm having woodchuck. Nice, some classy woodchuck. Some uh, woodchuck. You know what? I don't flavor like of woodchuck. This is the, this is the crisp. Um, and because all of them, are, they're so overwhelming. I, I like Angry Orchard. Uh, they didn't have any, so I ended up getting this stuff. Because I'm not doing wheat anymore. Mm. And so, yeah, Wait, woodchuck, you're not doing, it is. You're not doing what? What? What do you mean you're not doing wheat? <laughs> I, I'm not. Do, I, I'm. I've. Uh, I'm gluten intolerant. Oh, gluten. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought that yeah. was the same thing. So that means sure. no beer. Um, so, that means so more wine. Oh, really? So if you give up gluten, you can't drink beer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have they have a couple gluten free beers, um, but for the most part, I'll tell you what. If people are having problems with weight, cut out gluten for about a week and a half. <laughs> Seriously, I, yeah. it, it's insane. It's insane. It was just like. And it was just all gone. Um, but anyway, yeah, so no beer. There's a couple gluten-free beers there, man. But you don't really um, so drink Yeah, cider beer. and wine. You're not a beer, big beer drinker anyway, though. No, but it's, now that I can't have it, I want it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, now, and, and, and like you go to, because I'd go to breweries where, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would just get whatever beers they had there. And, right. you know, I enjoyed it. Um, but, yeah, so no, no beers anymore. 
Is this, so what, is this a recent thing? The gluten. Um, I've always had. I've always known that I've had issues with it, but yeah, recently it's just gotten more intensified, and I've just I started feeling like crap, and so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to cut. I'm actually, my wife was like, you need to just cut it out. She actually went paleo, and really? um, yeah, so I was like, I'll I'll try paleo, and I tried it, and basically um, felt pretty good, especially after uh, the wheat. But then I started eating all the other crap <laughs> uh, yeah. that she won't. Um, but yeah, anyway, paleo, I, and now I'm feel much better. And I lost a crap load of weight. Yeah, I thought about going gluten free just to kind of try it. If you go to Trader Joe's, they uh, give you a whole menu, a whole yeah. uh, stuff. But uh, I like to give things up. This year, I gave up meat and I gave up uh, dessert for the whole oh, year. You gave up <laughs> so, meat for the whole year, just for the fun of it. I don't know why. My wife thinks I'm crazy. So uh, <laughs> next year, I was thinking about doing gluten free. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. It's it's it. it the, the I miss bread because I I mean I had an obsession with it. Oh, but anyway, yeah. yeah. This isn't a health podcast. <laughs> it's interesting, though. It's very interesting. All right, Alex, what are you drinking? Well, I uh, wanted to uh, drink a Manhattan, but I realized I was out of sweet vermouth, uh, so I couldn't make one. So I'm drinking a Guinness with lots of wheat. Is, Manhattan your, <laughs> is Manhattan your cocktail of choice? Uh, yeah, or I like a gin and tonic. Nice. Too. Gin and tonic's pretty much my uh, go-to. Helps me relax. What type of gin do you like? Uh, well, I, I, if, Hendrix I like a lot, but it's kind of pricier. Uh, right now on my table, where on a corner, I think on the table is Amsterdam or New Amsterdam. I just tried it. It's like not expensive, and I wanted to see. It's not that bad. So, huh. you'd recommend it? Yeah, it's yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Cool. I would say. Have either of you guys been to the Flat Twelve Brewery here in Indianapolis? No. Nope. It is a very good brewery. I uh, I recommend you checking it out sometime. It's just small. I think it started about a year and a half, two years ago. But uh, I went and picked up a six-pack of Flatjack Pumpkin Ale for the uh, October times here, and it's it's very good. Flat 12 Beer Works, so I guess they call themselves a Beer Works. But it's good beer. I really like it. They actually do a... They do like a 12 Days of Christmas where they do a different beer every day for 12 days. And they do some really neat stuff. They did a, uh, a honey-baked ham porter. <laughs> literally had honey-baked ham in the fermenter. And you could taste it. And it sounds like this would be disgusting. It was the best porter I've ever had. And I don't even like dark beers that much. This was amazing. Like I could drink five glasses of this in a night. It was so good. It's a porker. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> How long did you sit on that one for? Is that a minute? You just sat there like, I can't wait for yeah. to stop talking so I can say this. Sorry. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's get into our topic and start off by getting a little bit of a background about you, Alex. And if you could just tell us how you got into the marketing world and, and what, what makes you really passionate about it. So I think I heard most of that. You said, how did I get into marketing? Yes. Um, well... I got into it because, uh, uh, so so I, I had be, I had been a little bit more in like uh, HR and getting more into some strategy things, and I, I really like creating customers. I realized I like solving problems, and I liked uh, working with people, and so marketing some seemed like a really good place to be able to, uh, and sales to be able to learn about problems and be able to help people out, and and uh, and so I. I, from my perspective, that it just seemed like a, a nice, nice thing to try, and I, I just tried it out a little bit. And I really liked it, so it's kind of one of those things where I would say, you know, try a few things, see what you like, and um, marketing and sales definitely w- was up my alley. So, so how, how long well, have you been I, doing? Uh, I got a question. Yeah, go for it. 
Um, would you call yourself a salesman? No. Okay. So are you a marketer? <laughs> um, honestly, I, I just like helping people solve problems. Well, I know. Uh, uh, yeah, I get, I'm, I'm just trying to help frame kind of uh, frame the my uh, background. Yeah, frame your background. Okay. Right? I, yeah, I, 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 I work at a company uh, called Public Safety Medical, and I oversee our our sales, our marketing, and our strategy. Um, uh, really, maybe uh, if I, if there was such a thing as a chief customer officer, okay. I just don't like the term sales because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I get I get the stigma. So, so yeah, I guess I, I would consider myself sales. And marketing, I just uh, the the only challenge is I yeah the stigma, exactly. You got it. Yeah, because I I don't like most salespeople. Um, you don't. <laughs> I, well, I have a natural uh, uh, dislike for them mm-hmm. um, because uh, most most of the ones that I've been experienced with are unauthentic, mm-hmm. and and to a point where it's gross. <laughs> you know, where it's just like, oh my god, how can you go home knowing that you just did what you had to do? Yeah. Um, uh, so that's 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 why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. So I the stereotype and that inauthenticity don't like it. But yeah, I guess if we had to call me a salesperson, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been doing marketing slash sales for? Mm, I guess in different roles. Uh, I had a, a consulting company where I did uh, just sales and marketing for the for the company. Uh, I also led an organization uh, when I lived in Minnesota. Uh, that that I, I was responsible for all the sales, uh, and, and then also at the company I'm at now. Uh, so I would say, may, probably probably uh, well, not not that long. Maybe like uh, less than ten years. That's that's pretty long. That's pr- that sounds yeah. long to me. <laughs> I thought you were Jer- say Jared's like, only twenty three, um, oh, okay. and, and that's the problem. <laughs> not true. More like thirty one, but <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I thought you were gonna say like four years or three years, the way you're setting that up. And yeah, like, I, I was hoping for like like a year and a half. Right? And you're like, yeah, it's a little less than ten. Just, just got the job. <laughs> I haven't yeah. been doing it for thirty years yet. <laughs> yeah. But cool. So I'm learning every day. So yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you learn. Like, are you more of a hands-on guy? Do you like reading books? How, what are your resources? Uh, yes. I, um, yes. I'm a hands-on guy, reading books, mentors, getting, uh, learning from other people. Uh, and, but, but the thing about say, uh, about uh, creating a repeatable sales process is just like a lot of things, learning is a contact sport, uh, especially in this area. So you just got to get out and do it. Uh, otherwise, you can't. You can only learn so much. Uh, in terms of great resources that um, that I like. Uh, definitely number one on that list would be Mastering the Complex Sale. It's uh, by a uh, author named Jeff Toole. He's just absolutely incredible. Um, I was just at his, uh, he, he put a seminar on. I was just at in Chicago not too long ago. But he's, uh, I'll give you a quick story. And I know this is, we're talking about things that maybe uh, I can lend some insight into. But he's one of those guys where, Half the things I know are, from, are things that he said or done, but uh, I'll give you an example of, of him. He, uh, one of the companies that, that brought him in was a his company and was a company called well Shell Shell Oil, uh, their, their division Global Solutions. And um, I was reading this actually. If you read the book Mastering the Complex Sale, you'll read this story. But in the very beginning of the story, the, the VP of Sales was talking about Jeff, and the VP of Sales said 
when he took over, he wanted to create a uh, this this division at Shell. He wanted to create a Rainmakers Award where he rewarded the top salespeople, the top ten, but they had to do at least ten million dollars in sale that year. And so when he went around, they only found uh, seven people that did ten million dollars in sales that year. And so after that, uh, he brought Jeff in, and within a couple of years, and he gives Jeff all the credit. After uh, within a couple of years, they had. 22 people that did $25 million in sales in one ticket alone. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and that division went from uh, doing $100 million to $800 and some million. <laughs> but they went from 100 employees to 45. Wow. Wow. And so, I, you know, if, if it results talk, then, and I don't know how much they do, but he's, this guy, he, it's just absolutely incredible. So it's completely helped me out with, uh, with the business I'm in right now. So what, what is some of the things that you took away from reading that book? Um, he, uh, he really tries to, to help you. You know, I got it right in front of me here. I, he gives you a few things. Um, you know, I didn't, but what, one of the things is he, he, all the stereotypes about sales, he basically says, do the opposite. You know, you don't need to be presenting, um, you don't need to come to people expecting to know what they have. He just says, he, he says this. He says, hey, don't be a salesperson. Be like a friend. If you, wouldn't, if you were their friend and you wouldn't recommend it, don't sell it to them. Mm. You know? And the second thing is, and this is, this is probably the crux of all my marketing and sales success, is you can't build a strong sales or marketing process if you don't understand the problem. And the problem is what you build it on. Because sales psychology shows us that people buy not when they see a solution, but when they truly understand the problem. That's where they're willing to give you money. At the end of the day, uh, you want to be able to help them find a good solution for that problem. You want to be a painkiller. You want to be a painkiller. You got it. Nice. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the repeatable sales process specifically. And just get me started here of I think I have a notion of what that means, but I'd like to hear from you exactly what that means. What is a repeatable sales process? Uh, you ever you ever heard of Gordon Graham? No, uh, I haven't. He, he I've, somebody told me about him recently. He's a guy here in Indy, uh, and he has a saying. He's a big risk management guy, and he has a saying: if it's not uh, if it's predictable, then it's preventable. And that's the saying: if you can predict it, you can prevent it. Well, I kind of took that saying and reworked it towards the sale process and, and did the opposite. If it's not predictable, then it's not repeatable. So when I say a repeatable sales process, basically what I'm talking about is if you do X, you'll get Y. You know, you, you, there's, a, there's a process that happens, a pattern that happens over and over again. And if you don't have that pattern, then you don't have a repeatable sales process. Well, let's try to apply this to a realm that I think about a lot. And I think a fair number of our, our listeners are in this world as well, where you have built something, some piece of software. It's either client-side software or server-side where it's software as a service. You know, So you have something you're going to charge some X number of dollars for, right? Yeah. So to me, the the you do x you get y i'm not quite connecting that dot because um yeah for me it's like well i i'm gonna charge you 40 dollars a month for this service but yeah. how do i create a repeatable sales process out of that okay so how do you, so are we talking about getting more and more customers right yeah paying exactly. you 40 dollars yep. yeah um so if i was somebody that had a uh, software as a service business 
and I started selling it. I, I, let's say I, I started gets, getting some customers, and I started feeling like, hey, maybe this is really good. Um, uh, this business has some potential. Maybe I can quit my day job and do this full-time and really focus on this company because if I keep getting more and more customers, eventually I'll get a salary out of this, or I'll, I'll be able to pay my own salary and, and more. Exactly. And so what happens a lot of times is then somebody will quit their job or they'll go start this uh, software-as-a-service company uh, full-time maybe, or maybe they actually get investors that say, hey, I'll give you some money too. And, and they have this spreadsheet that says we're going to make X amount of dollars by, uh, you know, in a, next, by next year. And then in year three, we're going to make X amount and, then, and so on. So and they, and, but the problem is, and this is maybe, maybe I can talk, it from, uh, talk at this from the perspective of not having a repeatable sales process. And so, so what ends up happening sometimes is they have these projections and they start budgeting based off the money they think they're going to be making. And all of a sudden, uh, they're not getting the sales like they thought they would be. And so now they're spending money they don't necessarily have. Or uh, things, they, they thought that, uh, you know, if I just uh, had AdWords on Google, I'm going to get a lot, of, a lot of customers. But the more and more they invest in it, the less customers they get or the more it costs for to get a customer. Or maybe they're sales. Uh, they're just calling, cold calling people, and it, they uh, they had some luck at first talking to some friends around them. But then all of a sudden, when they started to try to scale, and I guess here what we're talking about is scaling. Then at that point, uh, they're not getting the type of traction that they wanted. And this happens a lot of times, not just for people who are starting a, uh, a company like a SaaS-based product, but also companies that have been around for a long time. You may have a company that's been around for 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden, they lose traction again. You know, I can give you a simple example like a um, blockbuster would be an example where sales, uh, and I don't know if they use mailers or whatever, but uh, it, it, things started to change. Now, they, they had a problem, and that problem was the, the pain that customers felt uh, w- was being answered better in, at other places. You know, they, they, their, their solution they had maybe wasn't the best solution anymore. But nonetheless... It's basically you think you're gonna uh, you're gonna extrapolate all the efforts you're putting in, to uh, and you expect X amount of sales to come in, and they don't come in the way they do. Okay, so because what I, what I think I'm hearing here is you have a sales funnel, right? Yes. That yeah, could yeah. Be your AdWords could be your cold calling campaign, whatever those sales funnels are, and you have a conversion rate. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking but about. But neither of these are fixed as you scale. Yeah. So then that throws a huge wrench into it. How do I create a predictable, repeatable sales process then? Sure. As I scale. Well, well I can tell you, uh, well, first I'll tell you what not to do because this is what I see happens a lot of times. The first thing that I see happen uh, for a lot of people is, is they have that sales funnel and the, the conversion rate starts changing on them and all of a sudden they're not, it, it's, it, and, and so what they start to do is they start to get desperate to, uh, to keep customers or to get customers. And so they start to add more and more features. And we see this happen a lot. Or they'll throw a whole bunch of things at the customer uh, hoping that something sticks. You know, but if I, if I threw 20 things at you, chances are you're not going to catch anything. You're going to flinch. Because what ends up happening for customers is uh, the more and more things we add to our product, the harder it is for them to see the value or the problem that it's solving. And so it starts to muddy that up. 
Um, another thing I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen this in your experience, Jared or Brandon, but another thing I see for a lot of people when things don't look the way they want it to look with their sales funnel is they start to go after every and any client and they start to almost become a consulting shop. You know, where we'll do anything for anybody. And, you know, I might, one of my, when I had started a consulting company, and for some people, they consult because they just enjoy working with people or they have this expertise. I think a little bit for me, when I had a consulting company, it was because I couldn't have a repeat, I couldn't get a repeatable uh, and scalable sales process, one where I could predict, where I had a sales funnel and I, uh, I knew how to move a customer all the way through from the top to the bottom of that. And so, you know, and, and the third thing, and I see this happen often. Uh, is we start to get non-profitable customers or clients. Um, maybe we're, we're lowering our prices more and more, and at the end of the day, we're just not making money. And, uh, but the, these are things that kind of happen. So, so if I see any of these things happening, uh, and if it, somebody out there, if there's a user that has, that they can identify with one of those situations, um, I kind of say start, start, start with the basics. You know, if, if somebody's lacking a uh, repeatable and scalable sales process, there's usually three problems that are going on. Problem number one is they're not solving the right problem any longer. Problem number two is they're not solving the right solution anymore, or they don't have the right solution. And problem number three is uh, they're no longer being found and evaluated the right way. And so those are three things that kind of uh, come to mind. You know, if, the, if, if I'm not losing, if I'm not gaining traction. And so... And feel free to you know ask any questions or pipe in as I'm explaining this. Yeah, but I can kind of just go through these three things if you want me to. Right, be- right before you do that, the one question I have is, what if I haven't changed anything about my offering? And yeah. I have experienced what you're saying where uh, I, I, I spent $100 on a advertising budget and I yeah. got about a 0.4% conversion rate which I, I was pretty happy with. I'm like, hey, that, that seems great. Oh, yeah. I wasn't using AdWords. I was using influads.com. Mm-hmm. And if I had been using AdWords based on my previous experience where I would just play with the $75 of free credit they'd give me, I'd get about 0.15% conversion rate. So I seem to be doing a lot better for my money on influads. And because they actually use a little image and some text with it. And I think yeah. you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But then I decided, well, I'll go ahead and spend $1,000 on this campaign. You know, I had my creatives finished at this point, tested. Yeah. They had that high conversion rate. I felt more comfortable, more confident with putting bigger money behind that budget, just like you're saying. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I did my computation, quick napkin calculation of, well, hell, if I got this many people for doing, you know, $100, well, I'm going to get 10 times as many people if I go spend 1000 That's going to be great. That's more people than I could ever want to come to Talonopoly. Sure. So, I did that, and my conversion rate, of course, over the course of a month, plummeted to about 0.1%. And now, I hadn't changed the creative. I didn't change the website at all. But yeah. my conversion rate went down as I spent more on my advertising campaign. Why is that? Because even, even now, I have no idea why that happened. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the short answer is I don't know. I don't know why it happened. It's bullshit. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's it's a game that they play because they get a bunch of people to do exactly what you just did so you think the advertising network was was giving me advantages and went for my first hundred to get me hooked would i be surprised would you be surprised no i wouldn't be that surprised i mean again when yeah. when we're talking about the advertising space right you do some dirty shit <laughs> i mean and and that's just the way it works and that's fine i love advertising and i don't have a problem with doing the dirty shit um, but, but yeah, would it surprise us? No. 
Well, but AdWords isn't AdWords is completely automated, so it theoretically isn't doing yeah. any of that, right? It wouldn't I, be. It would, would again. I wouldn't be surprised if if it's if not. If it's it, it can be automated. That's fine. You know, we're going to open it up a little bit more than we say we're going to, as far as you know, targeting the right people. And, you know, for the first whatever, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were there was some fuckery afoot that that was causing, you know, it to look like you're getting better results at a lower number. Then you go and you say, well, I just multiply that times 10 and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden your number starts dropping to something more realistic because you have more people. I, I found this to be true just in most things that I've approached with Talentopoly, though, not just my advertising campaign. You know, I will have a good month of traffic. And now it actually is pretty leveled off. But in the beginning days when I would just live and die by Google Analytics and, you know, oh, man, I got 100 people to come to the site today. And, you know, I would start to think, well, I've, that's, I'm going up steps, right? And mm-hmm. every step I take, I can only go up, right? But then the next month, everything would be shattered when I would get maybe half the visitors that I got the month before. I'm like, well, that's not supposed to happen. I'm only supposed to go up, not back down. And I, so I know exactly what you mean, where you, you're doing these calculations in your head, at least, and you're thinking, well, this is going to grow at this rate, and this is great. But it never seems to – the growth never always seems to be a trend upward. In the and you know what? I, my, my guess, honestly, is that it's just the, 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 the sample's too small. You know, to have these ones and, – and you guys can you know, correct – but if you don't have a huge sampling – um, it probably is significantly harder to predict realistically what's going to happen because you're missing, you know, as it amplifies, um, you're missing all these kind of peaks and valleys and all of a sudden they happen and you're like, oh my God, you need five, six years to be able to really figure out a pattern. That I, yeah. would, I feel like that's true. And that very well could be that, you know, it could be that, uh, from my perspective, I, but I'd want to figure out why that that's, if I have a change like that, I'm thinking, well, why is that? But can but can you really figure that out when you're dealing with you know somewhere between a hundred and and uh, you know five hundred people coming to your website a month? That's a and good that question. yeah, and you got to wonder why they're coming to your website and are they friends and family? Are they are they people that have heard about you through word of mouth or you know is it through uh, what, what's it through? I guess you would maybe well measure how people are coming through right. yeah. to your website. I think but. this segues really nicely into your three points. Yeah, you're saying maybe you're not solving the right problem or you don't yeah. have the right solution. Or you're not being found and evaluated correctly. But to Brandon's point, since you do have a small sample size and most of us aren't, don't have the benefit of large amounts of traffic or large amounts of customers to throw through the funnel. So how can we, you know, a lot of it's going to be guesswork, but how can we know that we're guessing correctly? That yeah, and I don't know do if it's so wrong. much of uh, abandoning a channel as much as it is testing uh, multiple channels. And saying, okay, I'm I'm going to spend X amount here, and here's what I'm here's the type of return I'm getting, and I'm going to do something. I'm going to do uh, phone calls and call people, you know, or I'm going to do I'm going to uh, do a, some kind of social media strategy, you know, uh, or I'm going to start a podcast, and I'm going to see how much uh, traction, how many how many how many people come to my website from that, you know. There, so there's there's a variety of different, uh, I, I you know, it, I think what, what might be easier is just taking. Uh, having multiple ways of getting customers and kind of stacking them against each other. Does that make sense? I th- yeah, I, I think you definitely have to have multiple channels and it's good to be measuring it. But I think that yeah. the heart of my problem still gets back to when I listen to other entrepreneurs talk about how they evaluate their business, 
it's very the the really ones that I think are really good in my opinion are those that it's almost like an historian looking back at critical events that with hind- yeah. 2020 hindsight it seems very clear but when I look at these great entrepreneurs they're looking forward as their business is going and they're seeing some of these problems and they're divine like they're divining it you know it's it's not like there's a simple way to sit down and figure out two plus two equals four. Like I'm, yeah. I'm clearly, my website is not working well enough to allow people to evaluate my product correctly. They, they're not just like, well, here's the one thing I have to change, but they can think about yeah. it in terms where they say, uh, I, we're probably not solving the right problem here. What we need to do is, you know, while we were making this great online game, we made a way for users to share photos in it. And they yeah. needed to be able to do that really easily so that the game was still fun and it didn't just bog them down. And what we realized is that there was actually a much bigger need on the web for people to be able to easily share photos and thus Flickr is born. And I think some of the really great entrepreneurs are able to see that and not necessarily like that's an example of pivoting. But I mean, just being able to look at here's what this is how people are seeing it. This is how people are using it. This is what we need to do. And I've looked at my products like Talentopoly and, and just sat there scratching my head thinking, well, you know, how can I get more people to this? I don't really know yeah. why people are bouncing off of that. I don't know why my bounce rate is that high. Yeah. And trying to put your your head in the mind of your users has been really, really tough. Well, yeah. That, but you know what? I think you're right. That's what you have to do. And I, there's an entrepreneur professor named Steve Blank, and he's been saying for a long time, get out of the building. That the only way you're going to learn is, is you got to go to your customers. And, and really, there's, there's three things that you can learn. You can find out if, if you're solving the problem correctly, if you have the right problem. You can find out if you have the right solution for them. Or you can find out how they learn about you. Uh, but the truth is, you can't do it from behind your computer always. You have to get out and you have to start talking to customers. And that's the best place to start. It really is. So uh, how would but, you recommend somebody who has a software business to be able to so, engage their customers and set up a repeatable process. Sure, sure. Uh, if I had somebody that had a, uh, a software business, the first thing I'd do is if I have customers, I'd actually start calling them and I'd start talking to customers. I'd start trying to capture people's information. Uh, there's a few things I want to know. So the first thing I'd want to know, and I kind of would drill down uh, to the basics. And, and I'm thinking, so I approach this uh, topic from more of a time perspective. So say you had a product uh, that was doing really well in year one and year uh, three, things started to change over time. But it could be, you know, just uh, it, it could be like your situation too, where you have, uh, uh, you, you know, you were doing X and your result was Y. You know, you, you put an X amount into AdWords and you got this many people to come to your website and now you put in twice as much, but you didn't get twice as many people to come. So it could be either way. Uh, the first thing I want to know is, am I solving a problem that customers are willing to pay me for. And now this is, this is a little bit different than people visiting your website. Uh, so I'm thinking, it, I guess let me ask you about your business. Uh, do you see people coming to your website as part of your product? Or are they, uh, or are they, are they your customers? Are they really your customers? I, yeah, I see the, my visitors, the developers, designers, and IT professionals as the primary customers. Okay. There's the job board, and there are employers that post jobs on there. But the primary customer that needs to be satisfied, the primary constituent, are the readers that are coming to find great links to, okay. to brush up on their skills. Okay. Okay, I got you. Okay, so uh, the first thing that I, that I would ask, and I don't know as much about your business, is I'd want to understand uh, 
if you have the right problem. If, you, if, if Why would somebody want to come to your website? You know, what problem are you trying to solve for those people? And that problem uh, may be that you want to be able to aggregate the newest tools uh, that help people in their day job, which it sounds like you're doing a really good job of, you know, uh, or, or give them resources or connect them to uh, great opportunities. But that's the first thing I want to know. Am I solving the right problem? And uh, one of the ways that I'd want to test that is, is generally going to be, and so say I didn't even have a company. Say, I didn't, say you didn't even build Talentopoly yet. You could just test that by uh, some type of landing page to see, or, or some type of, uh, uh, just to see the response rate, how many people are going there, how many people are clicking to learn about stuff. But, uh, but, but a lot of times what happens for, for many companies, and I'm telling you, this happens a lot, not just technology companies, but companies that aren't technology companies, is they were solving a problem that people were crazy about getting solved, and it was a monetizable problem, and that's important. Not just a problem that uh, where people said, hey, this is important, but one where people were willing to pay them money for. Uh, and then like a SaaS-based product, where uh, whether it was a company or uh, they said, hey, I want to pay for this. But what had happened over time is all of a sudden uh, there was no more money in the budget, and we hear this a lot of times where people say, oh, I, I don't have money for this, or they start to... Uh, lessen the amount of services that they're getting that, that they're uh, or maybe for you you have less and less visitors uh, and so I'd want to that's where I would start I'd really start with am I solving a problem that people because if you get that right you're 50% of the way there in my opinion I think you can't build a strong marketing and sales process again unless you really understand the problem you're solving have you looked at uh, offerings like kiss metrics or yeah. intercom what do you think about those types of products I think they're I think they're neat. I mean, they, they give you data, uh, so you're not focusing on everything. Uh, they give you a, a, a they give you a few things uh, that you can evaluate, um, and I think it's important to be able to to evaluate that. I'm actually just looking up Kiss Metrics again. They do the uh, is it do they do the pirate metrics with them too? Uh, I don't know about that. I know that there's a local company that's getting, yeah pirate metrics. Yeah, that is yeah. doing pirate metrics. The, the big thing with data is you just got to know what you're looking at. You know, it's easy to measure everything and anything under the sun, uh, or it's easy to measure what's called vanity metrics, things that don't matter. Like, uh, For listeners that maybe don't know, what, are, what is pirate metrics? Can you explain that quickly? Yeah. Uh, pirate metrics, uh, Dave McClure uh, talked about this, I think, a couple of years ago or several years ago. The, uh, wait, the, the, the guy on The Simpsons? No, no, yeah, the guy oh, doesn't. Oh, no, 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 that's not him. No, this is yeah. a PayPal guy who went on to do 500 startups, which is an incubator yep. on the West Coast. Dave yeah. McClure. Yeah. yeah, Dave McClure. Very outspoken <laughs> guy, but very, very smart. He is, yeah. I think one of his claim to fame is he's one of the early investors in Mint. and But he was. you said he was a PayPal guy? Yeah, he's from yeah. PayPal originally. He's part of the, quote, PayPal mafia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he talked about... Um, if you have a, uh, a – and I, I apply this more, in my opinion, to consumer-facing uh, companies, you know, not necessarily uh, enterprise metrics. But basically he says that there's five metrics that matter. A lot of times we look at data and uh, it uh, doesn't matter. What he says is, hey, you got to look at five things. Number one is acquisition. And you can define that however you want, but it's basically how do, uh, how do people become aware of you? How do, you know, come into your website. That's an example of acquisition. You're acquiring them. They went to Talentopoly. Um, activation might be, it depends, again, what type of company you have. And, but that's the second A. The second A is active. Well, I'll just say that all, first I'll give you all the names. So it's activation, acquisition, 
activation, retention, referral, revenue. So again, acquisition is maybe I come to your website. Activation is I sign up for your newsletter. If that's part of the the what you're what you're selling to me, you know, and and retention or or maybe uh, activation is I sign up on your on your website to to look at all the cool tools, uh, and that's important too because now I know how many actual users I have. The third thing is retention. How often do I come back? So you may measure it monthly. You may say I want all my designers and developers to come back uh, at least once once a month. And so you can measure how many people are coming back. And that kind of shows you the strength of your, uh, of your product. You know, and, and are you solving a problem that matters to people? Right. Uh, re- referrals. Now, I know a lot of people say referrals are very important. I think it depends on your business model. But uh, nonetheless, referrals are important across the board. But uh, you may have built something in where you have a uh, – where once I, I, I sign in to, uh, on Talentopoly and I create an account, I can refer, I can uh, invite like all my friends or something like that. Yep. And so this referral then shows you for every, uh, how many people, you know, for every person that signed up, how many people did they recruit to sign up? I've heard and that then, called the viral coefficient. By yeah, people. as long as it's 1.1, right? Yep, 1.1 yeah, so or as, higher. Yeah, so as long as I, as long as one person can recruit more than one person, to be a customer, then you, you are viral at that point. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then the last one is revenue. And a lot of times this, is, this matters. It depends on what type of business you have. If you're a consumer facing and you're going after users, uh, it may not matter as much. But uh, if you're like an enterprise company or at that, at that point, revenue is everything. If you have a SaaS-based product that you're selling to um, IT departments and companies or marketing departments or something or small businesses, at the end of the day, the metric that matters is revenue. You know, out of all these people that are coming to your website, signing up for an account, using your product, uh, referring people, how much of that actually gets turned into dollars? Mm-hmm. And basically, he says those five things. If you measure those five things, then at the end of the day, uh, that that's all that matters. You don't need to measure all of the other hundred things that people measure. Is that a good explanation? I mean, I, you understand it pretty well too. I think. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it He's, makes okay. perfect sense. What I'm starting to think about as you're saying all of this is you brought up the point of over time, the and you have a quote in the show notes that I think is great, the pressure point of the opportunity changes over time. That's yeah. Brad Feld. And I'm thinking that really rings true because as you're getting a grip on these pirate metrics, they're changing. Yeah. Year by year, this stuff is changing. And now... You have to get out your divining rod and figure out why is my acquisition rate changing? Why is – and all of it boils all the way down to your revenue ultimately. But these other things like your your activation and your acquisition, why are those things changing? And I'm thinking I need to know certain techniques. I need, you know, I need to know better how do I figure out what is changed so that I can then react to it. And do you have any yeah. suggestions on how I can figure that out? Um, yeah, I can give you a little. So I'll give you an example from uh, the company I'm at now, but it's not a technology company. But I, uh, I'm thinking some of this stuff might be able to carry on. So I work for a company called Public Safety Medical, and it's an occupational medicine group that works with fire and police departments. And what we sell to them is a group of services where uh, we do like physicals to prevent a lot of the job-related diseases and injuries. So when you have a fire, if you know anybody who's a firefighter or they just had that big explosion in Indianapolis uh, this weekend and all a whole bunch of firefighters went there uh, and police officers. 
Uh, well, the interesting thing about uh, we think about it being a dangerous job. The truth of the matter is the average age of a civilian heart attack is 66 and the average age of a firefighter heart attack is 49. Oh. Yeah. And the, and the part of the reason why is it's the job. I mean, I, we have people who are in their 20s and 30s, top athletes, eat perfectly, exercise all the time, but they wear 80 pounds of gear, going to 1,000 degree temperatures uh, with very little sleep because they get called in the middle of the night. Uh, and they're at maximum heart rate for 20 to 40 minutes. And at the end of the day, hearts just can't sustain that. And so we, and the same thing is actually very similar with, with police officers as well. And so we had a company, uh, so we, we've been around since the late 80s. And uh, I think we're the biggest of our kind in the nation. Uh, we're just regional. We're just in the uh, Midwest. But, and we've been working with fire and police departments. And what we do for them, I guess you could call it, is glorified uh, physicals or medical monitoring. And we do all this advanced testing, almost like you put somebody in a, in a laboratory and you hook them up to a whole bunch of machines. And, and we just want to make sure that this person is safe to be able to do their job so that if you call a firefighter at 4 in the morning because your daughter's on the second floor in the fire, you want to know that person can get, get that person, get her out. You want to know that they're able to do their job. You know, and the same thing is true with a police officer. And really for them, what we do is uh, when we do this, it's actually for the employee as well because we want to make sure they're safe so that they don't end up, uh, uh, you know, dying or, or, or facing disability so they have a full career. And so in the 90s, what happened was we were growing and, uh, we, and in the 2000s, we were growing a lot too. And then with the Great Recession that happened, and I'm sure just for like a lot of companies out there, they don't have to be occupational medicine uh, things started to change a little bit, and they started to have less and less customers. And for us, uh, our new customers, and luckily we were tracking some type of data, uh, our new customers that we were getting were, were getting smaller and smaller. And we started to lose some customers. We started to lose some of our uh, our clients and uh, the bigger, bigger companies, uh, or sorry, departments. And so we work with departments. So Indianapolis Fire Department is a client of ours. Carmel Fire Department, you know. Fishers, Noblesville, all, all, pretty much everybody in the state of Indiana. But uh, so as you would lose these customers, would you reach out to them and ask them? Why? Well, I, well, I wasn't at the company at the time, but I we didn't necessarily. We, all those things, that symptoms I talked about, uh, were things that we had we had done in some kind of manner. You know, we started to uh, throw a whole bunch of things at the customer, saying, "Well, we can do this, this, and this for you," you know, and uh, or or trying to close a new customer. We would bend over backwards and do every, and accommodate at any cost, even if we weren't making money, just to get a customer. Um, we started to try to go after other clients too, not just fire and police departments. Maybe we can get traction somewhere else because we were losing traction there, or maybe we just our customers got really sensitive to price as well, and we were starting to get nervous. And so, but to be honest, that's exactly what we had to do. So, so what we ended up doing, luckily, and I would credit a lot of this to Jeff Tool as well, and. Uh, there's some other resources that help you out with this, but this whole concept of customer development, you got to start at the basics. So what we started to do, uh, and this is something I was involved in, uh, was I actually, I went out and I met with a whole, a lot of our clients. I met with uh, the clients that we had and I needed to understand, okay, so why do you even go with us? And I started with the basics. I wanted to understand what job, and so there's a few things that if there's anybody out there and they're losing traction, there's a few things you have to understand about your client. Um, the first thing I needed to understand is uh, 
why were our clients even uh, going with us? You know, why why did they purchase our services? Uh, and well, actually, you know, rewind before that. I need to understand what their what their company was trying to accomplish. So, if I'm a fire department, I want to keep people safe. I want to keep the public safe. You know, and I need to know. Um, what makes them successful? What makes so? If you have a client out there that's a uh, that you're selling to, you need to understand what makes them successful. The second thing you have to understand is uh, what problems are they facing that your product could help solve that would keep them from being successful. And I know I'm kind of dumbing this down a little bit, but it's really that simple. And there's no black and white kind of science where your product perfectly fits a problem. Uh, but you just got to understand and you talk to them, ask them. Uh, under, uh, one great question to ask them is when you understand the main process they oversee, here's a classic question. And you can take this back and you can use it with any type of client you have. Ask or a prospect. Ask them with all that's going well in whatever process they oversee. Uh, you know what? Actually, I'll practice it real quick. Um, Jared, can you tell me, can I, can I use you as a guinea pig? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is called the A to Z question, and it, I'm telling you, it will get you so much mileage. Uh, can you tell me about? Uh, uh, I guess do, do we can use uh, Talentopoly, or or actually, uh, do you have another job that you do, or anything else that you do outside of Talentopoly? Yeah, I, I mean, I do consulting, programming. Okay, uh, and so let's start with uh, programming then. What would be the main process that you oversee? Uh, I, I do everything from program management, like project management, to the actual development of uh, web apps. Or okay, let's talk about pro- let's use project management then of the uh, of the uh, um, web apps and mobile apps uh, uh, services that you offer. Uh, what's the be- in, in order to really successfully manage this product? What's the biggest challenge in the beginning to get this off the ground? Uh, absolutely. Detailing the specification of the project, getting nailed down everything that the project's going to entail for the deliverables. Okay. And what's the end outcome that you want? That you would say this is a successful outcome of being successfully project managing this? Uh, at least for that first step, to have some good documentation on, on what, you know, what the features are going to be, what the requirements for the project are, and get them signed off on by the customer. No, for the whole, for the whole project management process. Uh, successful outcome. Ultimately, success equals delivering what the customer is expected to get for their money on, you know, by the certain time that they expected it. That's, I mean, meeting their expectations. That that okay. equals success. Okay. So as you look at that whole process of managing the product, uh, the project management portion of the web and uh, mobile apps, from the beginning of the process of having fully specked out uh, the pro- specking out the project uh, in detail. Uh, all the way to the end of the process of meeting the customer's expectation on time and budget and product with all that's going well right now, with all that's going well in your current process, what would you say your biggest area of concern is? Uh, The biggest problem is probably just weekly communication or even day-to-day communication towards the end of the project Uh, and knowing how each customer likes to communicate. It's different with each one. So, Communication, I guess, is is the pain point there. Communication. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You said uh, knowing how the customer wants to communicate. Yeah, different. Every customer is different. Some customers are really they want to be hands on in the details, and they want to know, you know, as you're crossing off certain features, they would like to have that pushed out to a staging environment where they can actually see it and test it and see the progress. 
other customers don't need that level and they wouldn't actually want that if you did offer it to them. They, they hired you so that they don't have to deal with it. They would see it as a headache. So they want to just be able to trust in you that it's getting done and they're going to be more of the give it to me when it's all done and it better all be right, which is a more hard, that, that's harder to get done correctly because you didn't get their input along the way. But they don't there, want to deal with it along the way. So, so is it? So, what, what's the biggest challenge in that communication process? Are you saying kind of like the guesswork of understanding, or yeah, or the client lot, even not knowing how they want to communicate? Or? Yeah, a lot of clients they just you know they don't come out and tell you this is how I want you to communicate with me. None of them do. So you've really got to feel them out early on and figure out how you're going to communicate with that one. And you know, a, a one size fits all doesn't really work. You can't necessarily say, well, I'm going to contact every one of my clients for an hour every Friday and yeah. give them a, a detailed update of all the tickets that we closed out in our, you know, pivotal tracker. I mean, there are some that just wouldn't want that at all. Now, others will love that and think you're great for having that level of detail and communication with them. Yeah. Uh, is there a specific example that comes to mind? Um, yeah. I mean, the, every project I work on, <laughs> I face this. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I've got tons of examples but yeah, uh, like, what do you, what are you asking for specifically? Um, yeah, that comes to mind with this challenge where you would say, yeah, this was exactly the problem that I was dealing with. So I, I, I'm trying to understand the problem. Is it really uh, not them? Just basically the fact that they don't come out and tell you, and so it's a big guessing game. Yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. the problem. And, you know, I would think okay. I would think it's similar to sales as well, where you're really needing to figure out. You need to be able to talk in their language. You need, and that's not just their their mm. preferred words, but it, it's the tone and it's the frequency and it's the amount yeah. of detail they want and it's mm. you know whether you use cliches. I mean, it's everything. It's, it's how do you talk to these people, and everybody's different. And so, okay. I think project management yeah. is a lot like sales in that regard, where it's a lot about giving the end customer a warm fuzzy all the time and making sure that they're sleeping well. And that and the customers don't make it easy to do that because right. they don't come out and tell you. Oh yeah, uh, they don't tell you anything. You've got to figure it all out. Yeah, what this whole guessing game with figuring out their communication and the you know the way they want to. What impact does that have on um, on your customer satisfaction? It's number one. I, it makes complete, or breaks it. Yeah, it makes or breaks the entire project. Okay. Uh, what what about referrals? Would you say the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, that hasn't come up as much. Most of the clients that I have will, you know, they don't really do referrals because they end up, if they think I'm good enough that they would want to refer me, then I'm good enough to keep working for them and they'd rather just oh, have me yeah. available to work for them. Okay, so. so so you would say that when you do this well, you uh, you keep your, your, it's really retention. Yeah, multi-year contracts with customers is the goal. Okay, okay. So what I, what I, I won't go too far into this because of time. But I wanted to, these are just a few of the questions I would start to ask. Um, and really, you're dealing with a problem, uh, and I need to dig further into it because there's a very important question we have to ask ourselves, and it's what problem are we trying to solve? But if I was selling to you and you were my customer, one of the problems you might have would be the guessing game of trying to figure out the best style to communicate with clients. And that might, if I'm building a product or if I have a product, that might be something I'm trying to solve. Uh, I want to know if this is actually important, number one. So from a sales perspective, what I want to know is are you willing to pay me to solve this? And so what I would, what I would, if I continue down this road, 
I, I found out that this is actually affecting customer retention and really it's affecting your multi-year contracts. And I'm not going to ask you to throw any numbers out there, but I'm sure top of mind, if I was in a sales meeting with you, I would ask you this, but I'd want to know uh, what's the... Uh, you know, what percentage of your customers lead, um, do you feel like you had really good communication with versus not? And what percentage of that led to multi-year contracts? Because what I want to try to do is come up with a cost of the problem. How much is it costing you not to be able to have something that would help you uh, peel back the onion of the, of the communication process to get to, so you could get to the heart of the matter? Right. Um, but, but that's important. So if I'm in this, again, back to the sales, the first thing I want to do is I want to know, am I solving a problem? Uh, that you're that you're actually dealing with, even if it's my exact uh, existing com- uh, customer. So I go back to public safety medical. Here's the problem we were solving. We were a, we we were framing things out to customers as a wellness company. We were telling them we're going to help improve your employees' health. Well, the truth is, when the recession happened, people weren't willing to set, uh, spend tens of thousands or six figures on trying to put a wellness program together. That wasn't worth it financially, you know. And that's kind of where our range is. We're we're uh, you know, we're in the, the tens to the hundreds of thousands of dollars for clients uh, on an annual basis. They, but they, that's not worth it. That problem wasn't big anymore. It was big enough when budgets were growing. It was big enough when, uh, especially as healthcare started escalating. Uh, but what happened is it was no longer important to the client anymore. The problem, the cost of the problem in their mind wasn't a big enough one to solve right away. And so we started to lose traction. Um, what we did is I started to have interview after interview, trying to understand my, the clients I'm selling to, fire chiefs, union presidents. What are the problems that they're dealing with? Uh, and, and what's, what's going to impact their success? Luckily, I didn't, uh, unbeknownst to me, we were solving a very, very critical problem that I don't think we truly understood. And, and actually, I'll just give it to you shortly. We uh, take a lot of liability off of cities. So a lot of times what happens is... Um, Cities get sued all the time for this kind of stuff. And so what we were doing is we were taking lawsuits away from cities. The second thing is when we were preventing all these diseases and injuries, you may spend uh, per employee a few hundred dollars uh, with us, but the truth of the matter is a heart attack costs four to dollars to $700,000. So we were saving these cities massive amounts of money too. We didn't know. And so if I don't know this, I don't expect my customers to know this. So if I'm out there and I have a product and I'm not getting the same kind of traction I did before, chances are, the, again, back to the pressure point of the problem, it may have changed. The economy may have changed. A disruptive competitor may have come in, uh, into play. You know, All of a sudden, Blockbuster may be going out uh, because Redbox is there or Netflix or Borders may be going out you know, in, in Kindles in or, or any of these things or Amazon. You know, and, and this is the, uh, uh, at the end of the day, first I have to start with my problem. Uh, if I can nail a problem, and if I if I help people get to a point where they're saying I need you to solve this, and I quantify how much it's costing, the second thing I want to do is I want to make sure I have the right solution. So in sales psychology, people don't buy for two reasons. Number one, I won't buy from you because one, I don't have an incentive to change, which means I don't have a problem that I'm willing to pay you for, which means you're not solving a problem, which means you don't really understand me. Or number two, uh, I'm not going to pay you. To solve this problem because I'm not confident in your solution. Uh, and this happens sometimes for startups. I mean, you, there may be somebody out there that has a SaaS-based co- uh, company out there. I'm not saying spend thousands of, uh, tens of thousands of dollars on your website and stuff like that to be professional. But I am saying what happens from time to time is somebody may say, you got a problem and you nailed it. But I don't think if I give you this money that you're going to be able to solve my problem for me. And that happens from time to time too. 
Yeah. And I think what happens for, yeah. And what happens a lot of times is to alleviate that, what we do is we go and add more features. Oh, let me add more things and more things. That actually, interestingly enough, makes things worse. Because when I add more features, what I'm doing is, is actually masking and covering up the problem that I'm solving for this customer. More and more where all of a sudden I become a commodity and they can't tell the difference between my product and my competitor. In their mind, it's the exact same thing. And so what we want to do is actually drill down uh, and we want to find out what's the minimum amount of features we need to drive the sale. And one good thing to use is, uh, and I read this in a book, a credible book I recommend, again, besides Mastering the Complex Sales, Nail It, Then Scale It by Nathan Fuhr and Paul Alstrom, I think. And those are two books I would say, if you're going to have two books, those are own. Uh, them. But they talk about a very, really neat test, uh, and it's called the $100 test, where you go to your customers and you say, okay, if you had a, I hear all the features. If you had $100 and you had to invest the $100, what features would you invest it in and how much would you invest? And they may say, you know, these three, I'd put $70. These four, I'd put $30. And the rest of them, I would put, or $20. And the rest of them, I would put 10 And it basically tells you what's important to them what's not as important to them, and what you can cut out. And uh, in that book, you'll read a lot of case studies, but I've seen it firsthand, where when we started to peel things back, all of a sudden, we started to get more traction. People started to buy things, and I don't know if they could see it better. Uh, and it was a lot cheaper for us, too. But the second thing I want to do is I want to validate, do I have the right solution? The only way you can validate if you have a right solution is if you have uh, people who pay you for that solution. If you say we want to do a beta test and we're going to charge, um, in my opinion, and this might be a little edgy here, but I don't think you can validate your solution unless you're getting money for it. You're just validating someone's willing to try something. And if you say, well, let's give it to them for six months and then six months down the line, we're going to charge them. Again, I don't think you're validating anything. Cause you, yeah. Yeah. That's a good uh, then, point. Yeah. And I've heard other people make that and I, I subscribe to that too. I think that's a great point. I, th- this is such a deep topic. There's so many good things. So many good uh, facets to it to explore, and it, it's so critical if you've got a business that I think we're going to need to have you back on and, and further okay. explore this topic. It's, it's been great talking to you about this, and thanks for uh, being on here and, and discussing the sales process and everything you've learned about it. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. I kind of just uh, threw it out there, but it's uh, yeah, it, it's I'm still learning too, so thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, let's jump into our links. Uh, these are Talentopoly links that uh, surfaced on the website over the last two weeks that I think uh, you guys will find really interesting. And our first link is Sprite Me, a service to make <laughs> image sprites. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So, <laughs> the guy just, just took a little boop right when you said it, and it sounded like you spank me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so it was Sprite Me. For, for anybody who heard the thing, but I don't think you will. <laughs> and your your Skype is getting a little funky on us, Brandon. I'm not sure why. Your Skype is. Ah, uh, well, let's hope we can soldier through this here. If it if it get, if I start sounding too bad, just let me know. Um, so Sprite Me is basically a, a really neat bookmarklet that you can uh, use on any website, and it identifies the images on a page. And show it, it, it uses its rules to figure out how to put these things into sprites, how to put these images into sprites based on their sizes. And then it will write the CSS for you as well. So it really takes all the pain out of optimizing a website's images into sprite maps entirely. It makes it one button. 
pretty neat. Do you ever use yeah. sprite maps, Brandon? Yeah, you know, I, I start out my projects with a sprite, so I just kind of do it by I do it by hand. Gotcha. All right. But this is cool. Yeah, I just did it on the neat. New York Times, and it worked great. Yeah. So something worth checking out. If you've been thinking about doing sprites, but uh, for whatever reason you just haven't, check out Sprite Me. I think it's going to make it so easy you're going to start doing them. Our second link is responsive navigation, optimizing for touch across devices. And this is uh, basically an article talking about how these two guys did a quick study. And, okay, responsive web design sounds great, but the problem is is that you have more screen sizes to target with your responsive design than you initially think. Initially, you might think, well, I've got desktop, I have tablet, and I've got smartphone. And so you're thinking three sizes. But there's such a wide variety of screen sizes within those three categories now that these guys did this study to figure out, well, how do you do responsive design for a four-inch smartphone versus a five-and-a-half-inch five Galaxy S3? That four-inch iPhone is going to need like different-sized UE elements. It's going to, have di- it's going to need different uh, hotspots for touching on. So you really need to optimize it differently for these for all, within the categories. And they did some nice graphics here where they show posturing. They show how you hold these devices in general. And then they did a little, uh, little gradient to show you the green area is where it's really easy for them to click. Then there's this okay area, and then there's the hard area. So what was interesting is when you do your navigation on a standard website on a desktop, you usually put the navigation at the top. But on a smartphone, that navigation should be at the bottom. And a lot of the sites that I've seen, their responsive design doesn't go that far. They basically just resize the navigation, but it still stays at the top. Twitter Bootstrap's a good example of this. But I like how they took it one step further and said, well, really, that navigation should go to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So th- there's some interesting concepts in here. I think more than anything, you'll walk away from reading this article just thinking more about doing your layouts differently on each screen size. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Our third link is Try My UE website usability testing. Just a nice little service where you can pay $35 per test. Which, <coughs> yeah, sounds a little steep. Although, really, I don't know how many of these tests you would need to do before you start to see a pattern emerge. I would yeah. think just a few of them, and you're, you've probably got some good data. But what it is is that people will come and use your website, and they videotape themselves talking about using your website and you actually get to see the video of them stepping through a process of signing up and logging in and and discussing all of their thoughts along the way and then there's also a survey that gets submitted that they fill out when they're all done going through the process i think more people need to be doing this personally i have a few clients now i've been recommending these things to and these are clients that will fight me on certain navigational elements that they're really tied to that they dreamt up in this, you know, an Excel based mock-up that they came up with. And there's really no sense in spending a lot of time arguing with them. What I find is I'd much rather talk to them to spending 35 bucks. And for them, they're a larger company. It's not really that big of a deal for them to spend the money on this. And when they see real users have trouble using that navigational element and talking through it, that just opens it up to me being able to propose new navigation to them and say, well, let's now let's change this now that we see. So I don't have to be the bad guy telling them that the stuff isn't laid out correctly. I just let some other person for 35 bucks tell them that. So I'm a big fan of these services. I, I recommend that to anybody Yay. who does consulting. 
Uh, anyway, and Brandon, you you probably would have a few things you could use this on, especially if it were free, right? Yeah, because you know, I, you know, thirty five bucks really with the in depth that you're getting uh, in return is is really not that expensive. There are some people out there that I think are not, they're not, not going to be that objective about their how their website really isn't that easy to use and it's not easy to grasp what the website's even trying to do the web app and so I think this sort of thing is can be a great wake up call for them. Yeah. All right, link number four: a simple guide to responsive typography. We talk a lot about responsiveness. There's a ton of that information on the web right now. We talk about a lot on the podcast. Uh, mainly when you hear responsive web design, you think this is layouts that are going to change in size. Maybe the navigation is going to change. What we don't talk about a lot is the typography, and that's maybe even more important than the layouts or even the navigation because that's the main content of the site. That's really why you're there. And even if it's a web app, the typography, I would argue, is still very important because a lot of times you're not going to just have icons representing your navigation or your buttons the typography is there, is a big part of the data that you're looking at. And so using what they they say, use REMs, REMs. Mm-hmm. REMs are going to be easier than EM. EM is traditionally the way to go, which is where you size your font based on a parent element. But REM is nice because REM is relative to the HTML element that the font is within. So then as, you, as your responsiveness changes the size of your divs or your paragraphs or whatever is containing the font, that REM ratio is going to change the font size within that element. It's a little bit easier to work through your font sizes that way. It, it kind of contains it a little bit easier than just doing EMs and changing global EMs. So they also do bring up uh, optimum line lengths which is something I had never thought of before. They're saying even though you may have 850 pixels wide on a smartphone, that a lot of times, especially this is using the newspaper layouts where you use columns of text, you don't want it to use all that width because it's easier to read text when it's in a narrow column than when it's in a wide column. And so they recommend using 675 pixels on a 950-pixel width which was interesting to me. I wouldn't have thought to do that, but I think they do bring up some good points here. And that's really the theme of the two responsive articles I included tonight is just really to get you thinking more, taking responsive design to that next level and thinking more about font sizes and how do we resize the fonts? What are the optimum column widths? Where do we put the navigation? There are many, many more screen sizes to develop for than we're thinking of. It's just a lot more to think about with responsive design. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm going real quick through here. Sorry for anybody who's having trouble keeping up, but go to the show notes if you want to check out more on this, and uh, you can find the links on there. But the last link we have, link number five, is HTML5 myth busting. There's a lot of common sense stuff in this article about HTML5 myths and, and whether they're fact or fiction. Some of them, uh, I think... You probably already know these, like it does HTML5, HTML5 doesn't perform is one, which isn't necessarily a myth. And even the guy writing this goes into some detail about how, well, of course, native apps are always going to perform better. They're tailor-made for their platform, running natively. But he does go on to talk about HTML5 and how, you know, it can run offline 
it has a development environment. It may not be as well defined as, let's say, Xcode if you're doing Objective-C development for the iPhone, but there are plenty of well-defined development environments for doing HTML5 development. But where the article gets really interesting is when he starts talking about the Firefox OS and how the Firefox OS aims to make HTML5 web apps truly first-class apps on the platform, which I think is really is interesting to see how they're doing that sort of thing. And he talks about the APIs that they're offering, how they're going to run on commodity hardware very quickly. So there's some great stuff there to think about. And if that OS can actually take off and people do start using it, I think it'll catapult HTML5 apps much further ahead uh, in the next year or two mm-hmm. than they would be normally in that next year or two. Because on iOS and Android, face it, native apps are going to be the way to go for a long time. Yep, yep. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. I think this might be our longest episode ever, so that's why I was going through those links pretty quickly. But if you made it this far, we love you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found some interesting things that you can now use in your own businesses. Maybe check out those links and things you can use in your projects. And until next time, keep hacking.